On this episode of The Popcorn Diet, we break down the Oscar nominees. Oscars 2020 is here, and later we are going to talk about the war epic 1917. Get your popcorn ready. Welcome all you good movie buddies to the Popcorn Diet, a podcast for those who live on a steady diet of movie theater popcorn and other movie snacks. As always, my name is Rick Williamson, your very best good movie buddy, and joining us as usual is our other good movie buddy, the Canadian machine, Mr. David Melhorn. David, it happened. The Oscars are out. The nominations. The nominations. Are out. How are you feeling? You know, I f- I feel fine. I mean, you it's feel fine. You don't it's, spend as much time on the film Twitter as I do. It's true. You you get into the mud much more than I do. Yeah. That being said, I feel like, kind of like we talked about previously, this year was fairly predictable. And I would say that yeah. the nominations, there was a handful of moderate surprises. But I think they were also ones that like we probably, and if you go back to our previous podcast, probably said like it was an either or like yeah. this is what we think or maybe should be but it wouldn't surprise us if x y and z happen and right in a number of cases x y and z happen right uh, no all-timer type no there, there was nothing like out of completely out of left field where you're like what like right. how the, did that happen the best picture field is pretty was pretty much locked the director field was pretty much locked Actor, actress, supporting actor was as much of a lock as I think I've ever seen. Little bit of surprise in supporting actress. Not a lot of surprises in the screen. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it was. It was it was as expected for the most part. People still found ways to get really angry about it. I always have a hard time with this, particularly this particular day of Oscar nomination releases. Because you have to wake up before... Yeah, that was number one, because the Oscars want to dominate the I I asked it on our Twitter and it's like, why don't they do this in primetime? And there's a very clear answer. It's a stupid answer, but it's a clear answer. And it's so that this can happen. It's so that the Oscars can be talked about for the entire day. They dominate the news cycle. You know, people can complain all day. Exactly. And that's the hard part for me. As you said, I get into the mud of film Twitter every now and then. But I guess the most disheartening thing for me is that. No matter what, your favorite films and performances and things like that, they are still valid, you know? Like, people are arguing about opinions over these arbitrary awards. You're going to be disappointed if you're looking for validation in your movies from the Oscars, and more often than not. Absolutely. now, and, and I get the argument that the Oscars should be more representative. I get that because... Even though I find them to, like, I, they just, they don't really matter. The Oscars don't really matter, despite the fact that we've created no less than three episodes about the Oscars. Like, it's art. Art is not supposed to be put in competition. Art is subjective. But because there is a competition, I recognize the importance of wanting more people of color, more women, more, you know, more things like that. Despite the fact that over a third of the nominees this year were women, which is more so than ever before, it's not half. It's not a true representation yet. So people have been arguing all day. This should have happened. That should have happened. 
But what, so as far as overall thoughts go, it's about what we expected, right? I think so. What were some of the things that happened that you would say that you liked? That you were like, okay, this is good. I I think overall I was happy with the Best Picture nominations. They only went with nine, which Again. to me I'm always like, if you have ten slots, what's wrong with filling ten it's slots? Th- it's I, dumb. I, I don't understand it. So I would have loved to seen, and it was pretty much as we predicted, I would have loved to have seen Knives Out get the nod there, but I feel like that was redeemed to some point in the fact that it got a Best Original Screenplay Academy nomination. Award nominee Ryan Johnson. Now, one could argue, how can something be one of the five best original screenplays but not be one of the ten best films? Right. But again... If you try to go with logic when you look at the Oscars, <laughs> you're going to be disappointed. You're going to have a tough time. Uh, outside of that, um, it is, things- I believe, well, no, because there are 10 uh, screenplay nominees and there are 10 Oscar nominees. And there's two from both, one Ni- from both, original and adapted, that did not get. Knives best. Out did not make Best Picture. The Two Popes did not base- make Best Picture. What is the. The movie that didn't get Ford nominated for V Ferrari okay. wasn't an adapted or I guess it, I'm not it sure if be, it would be. It had to have been adapted off of a probably book. Off I of don't something. know. But that's the one that got in that didn't get a screenplay. Yeah, nomination. Two Popes and Adapted didn't get nominated for Best Picture and Knives Out. Not, in not always a, a, a big deal because famously, at least to me, Titanic did not get nominated for either screenplay award. Uh, but obviously was Titanic. The two that won screenplay that year, two of my favorite movies, Good Will Hunting and L.A. Confidential. Sure. So it's just interesting. It doesn't Does it represent something? I, I don't know. You can find stats and facts everywhere. Um, the only other thing that I would say that I was happy about, although it led to, one could argue, a disappointment for me, uh-huh. would be in the supporting actress. I actually really enjoyed... ScarJo and Jojo Rabbit. I think it might be the better of the two performances. And I and I like the performance better. Right. It's not probably the showy one or the more one that you would come to expect the Academy to love, but I think it was the better performance and the one that I enjoyed more. Mm-hmm. That being said, it's fun to see ScarJo get nominated for both. Um, but the the casualty of that one could argue was J Lo, which. Yes. Would have been fun to see J Lo. Um, obviously, great. I didn't see the movie yet. I don't think you have seen it yet. But no, it's oddly enough something that's been talked about all year long, and so you kind of felt like it was going to get it. But that she I guess con- that's kind of a she, surprise. Not only was not only she was considered not necessarily the front runner, but she was considered to be one of the like the major players, and that is clearly. And we'll talk about it when we talk about snubs. That's clearly. I think the biggest snub of the day um, there. I mean, again, I was happy with most of everything as well. There wasn't anything particularly that like made me go, yay, a ton. Um, you know, a lot of it was more from disappointment that, you know, Avengers Endgame didn't get as much love as I would have liked uh, the uh, uncut gems, you know, those kinds of things. So f- everything was part for the course. I I liked most of everything, but I also expected most of everything. As far as what I didn't like, like I said, uh, I really think it's a gross oversight that J-Lo didn't get nominated. I think it's just, there's just something about like 
the it's good to I mean look at best supporting actor. It's good to have the star power on display. And there's no reason to not nominate J Lo. Like there's no re like there's no reason to. You nominate Kathy Bates, who's already won an Oscar, who's you know, like it's unfortunate, you know. I have I, a question for you. Go ahead. You know, we always talk about hypothetical ways and ways to improve the Oscars and all yes. that kind of stuff. What would be your thoughts, at least in these major categories? So I would say the top six. Sure. The ones we predict. Maybe the top eight if you pull in the original and adapted screenplay categories. But okay. mostly I'm talking about the top six, the ones okay. that we predict. What would you think if they adopted a similar methodology as what they do with Best Picture, where it can be up to ten? Yeah. But it could be as few as five. So it's got to be five, but it could be up to ten. So I have two thoughts. Number one, I already hate that for Best Picture. Just okay. make it ten. Okay. You know, just make it ten. Um, so, like, that structure applied to all of the other um, categories might I might find more frustrating. However... There is something about if they I, I'll, I'll give you a caveat answer. Uh, if they made Best Picture guaranteed 10 and they made all the other ones five through 10 might be OK with it. Because my you, thought is like there's years like this where there's some categories where there's just casualties of yeah. the competition. Yeah. And Lead I feel actors, like there's at least three deep. Well, and I think you could argue even supporting actors got a handful sure. and supporting actress obviously has a handful. And I think there's one or two that lead you could argue in lead actress. Absolutely. Um, and obviously director, I think, has the most. Um, but I think with that being said, you're still only picking one winner. Right. And I think hindsight, you would look better if you nominated more in years where it's just really loaded. The Oscars would certainly look better. Yeah. Like there's some performances that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, we're going to be like, how did they not get nominated for that movie? Right. Right. And to me, like that could easily be avoided by nominating more. I understand like a, the same argument could be maybe one year that like, there should have been 11 instead of 10. Sure. Like there could be a year where we have 11 amazing actor performances, but I feel like there's a lot less of those. Like I think most years, even in a stacked year, you probably get to maybe like eight or nine. Yeah. I mean, at like most. even in the biggest, like most competitive category we have here, mm -hmm. which I would probably say is either actor or director. Mm -hmm. Like maybe we get to eight, like director we have, the ones that got nominated, which are Scorsese, Phillips, Mendez, Tarantino, and Bong, Bong Joon-ho, Joon I think you could have added Gerwig, Bombach, and Taika. And yeah, you probably would have been... At a minimum. You probably could have been okay there, though. Like, right. I don't think you would have heard much backlash from people if you had those eight. Like, if Mangle didn't get nominated for Ford v. Ferrari, nobody would really... No, no one would have been too upset. No. Um, from that standpoint. But... That's where I'm getting at in like an actor, like we have Banderas, DiCaprio, Driver, Phoenix, Price. Like what if we added in 
Bale and Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy, Taron Egerton, Taron Egerton. Uh, that gets us to Adam friggin' the Sandman, Adam Sandler. Sure, and you add in Sandler, and we're still only at nine. We're not using the ten, right? And again, at the end of the day, there's still only one winner, right? So it's not like we're cheapening that win for that person because they still won against all potential competitors. Sure. We're just recognizing more because. You know, 10 years from now, we might be like when like when we do our hindsight awards that we'll do before the Oscars. Right. And we look 20 years back. Right. There's some glaringly poor categories in yes. there that maybe didn't look as bad the night of or even when the nominations came out, mm-hmm. depending on who you were, you might not have thought. But like 20 years down the line, like you're like. What the heck? Right, like, exactly. How, like, really? What were people thinking? Well, and see, the funny thing is, is like, and, and you, you know, you're 100% right. As we sit here right now, there are, as you said, at least two or three actors in every category who could have been swapped in or swapped out or who got left out in the cold. But for the most part, a lot of these performances were uh, – but and movies for that matter were a universally agreed upon as being good, um, and b uh, already predicted for a lot of these a lot of these spots. Now Joker nowadays just happens to be Joker's the whipping boy, because Joker was, I mean. Take your pick on why people don't like Joker. They don't think the movie's very clever. They think it copies old school Scorsese. They don't think it has anything to say. They have a problem because white people made it. Whatever. Joker is clearly the soup du jour of what we are going to hate and rail upon and what people are going to pray to God doesn't win. But it got the most nominations. So, you know. That being look, said, look at the scoreboard. If, if we're looking at predictions, like it, it would not surprise me in the least if it's one of those years, and I'm trying to think of some of the recent examples of this, of those movies that get a ton of nominations but don't really win much. I got a, um, I got a couple for you here. I think the most likely category for it to win would be Best Actor. Mm-hmm. I think Joaquin, if I had to handicap even when you go down to some of the technical categories in that i think it's best shot right is is actor you look at you look at the last two years really quickly here i'm taking a look at the last two years uh last year the top two the top four four david and and that's the other thing before i even listen list this out the Academy has gotten a lot better at spreading the love, which I kind of find annoying. I miss the days of the juggernaut film that wins everything. But the Academy has gotten way more into spreading the love out for um, what wins. But last year, the top five, let's say, yeah, let's say the top five were Roma and the Favorite with 10, Star is Born with eight, Vice with eight, Black Panther with seven. Okay? Roma only won three. The favorite star is born. Vice only won one. So it, it like it, it is. It's having the most nominations doesn't mean a lot always. Uh, the year previous, Shape of Water had 13 nominations and only won four. Dunkirk has eight nominations and won three. So like it's it is precedented now that Joker isn't exactly going to go and dominate everything, but. Having the most nominations certainly gives you the most opportunity to win. I mean, La La Land had 14 nominations and it won six. 
uh, even though it didn't win Best Picture. And I think the the big one was Mad Max Fury Road won six on ten nominations. The Revenant won twelve, or I'm sorry, was nominated for twelve and won six or three. No, won three. Excuse me. So the Revenant got twelve nominations, only won three awards. You know, it's it's tough now. I just don't think the most awards matters anymore. They're the most nominations. Excuse me. I don't think the most nominations matter anymore. I mean, so, it's 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 a good feather in your hat to say we received twelve nominations absolutely. or eleven nominations. And there's more. Uh, there's more and ping pong balls in the machine. Exactly, exactly. Which is is at the end of the day what you're looking for, and at the end of the day too, like saying I was one of the f- five top performances of the thousands of movies that came out this year right. is is a big deal. Big so deal. I mean I think that's why to me like when I look back on the history of the Oscars, I get more upset when movies didn't even get a nomination versus didn't win because right. to me like when you start splitting hairs between like the top 5 movies of the year or the top 3 performances of the year like it's subjective like at that at that point like i'm not gonna hate anybody that thinks adam driver in marriage story was better than joaquin phoenix and joker or you know dicaprio was better than phoenix you know like you said to me show your receipts exactly if you're gonna get on twitter and you're gonna you're gonna say this is a travesty tell me why yeah follow up you presented a thesis back it up okay now a lot of people on online Obviously, today didn't like Todd Phillips getting a Best Director nomination, all right? And I kind of feel that because I would have rather had Taika, Greta, Bombach, anyone, Mangold, um, any one of those guys. But show your receipts. Tell me why. Why is Todd Phillips not so good? Is it because the movie apes early Scorsese? Is it because it acts like it has something to say about um, socioeconomic politics, but it doesn't really have anything to say about it? Tell me those things. Here's not a valid reason. Because he made the Hangover movies. Not a valid reason. It's not a valid reason. Sorry. And there's plenty of people, like I saw someone say, like, I can't believe the dude who made the Hangover movies is what's preventing us from having a female director. Like, the ultimate, like, dude director is blocking a female director from being... Like, nominated. this guy's a dick isn't an argument. Like, I'm sorry. (laughs) I I, I hate to break it to you. There's a ton of that people that are dicks in it Hollywood. It may be true. He may be a dick. He may be a jerk. He may be misogynistic. He may whatever. I mean, he made the Hangover movies. So what? Right? That doesn't mean anything when it comes to artists because a lot of artists are assholes. A lot of artists are weird, kooky, aggravated people. Sure. It doesn't matter if the art is good. Then it doesn't matter. Within you know? reason. There's so, there's some there's some. Well, of course. Unforgivable sins but they and things gave, like that. They, Roman, they nominated Roman Polanski for the p- pianist. Did I hear he you. even freaking win that? I'm not going to do the stats We on won't it. go down that road. But, like, he's not allowed back into this country because of statutory rape. And they still nominated him because sometimes, and I hate to say it in this woke culture, the art comes before the artist. It just happens. Now, what I, like I said, do I think Todd Phillips is the weakest of those five? I do. Sure. I think that's without question. 
Could Avia been subbed in? I do. Do I think J-Lo got snubbed? I do. Do I think Beyonce got snubbed? Kind of. Do I think Lupita got snubbed? Yeah, I would have loved to see Lupita up there, but who am I going to drop? Am I going to drop Renee Zellweger? Am I going to drop Charlize? I mean, I could drop Charlize. You know, Bombshell's not that good of a movie, but you... Just show your receipts is all I'm asking. And that, and have it be because of the art, not because I don't like this person. Well, and that's where I get back to at the end of the day, like I care more about who was nominated than who wins because it's like you're getting great recognition to say you're in the top five. Which is yeah, which is why it's important we spread it out a little bit. Like I understand I'm sitting here. I say it all the time, straight white American male, right? I'm recognizing my privilege here. And I agree. Like, I'm open to it. I'm open to all of it. But there's got to be validity. See, and that's where, and I don't think this would be the case if Gerwig would have gotten the nomination. But I also think, like, while we want, and we've talked about this a little bit before, while we want diversity in our nominations and that, at the same time, like, I think of like the hindsight too of like you don't want to be like looking at this 20 years from now and be like why did so and so get the nomination oh because they're a minority or oh because they're a female like you don't want to look at it and be like which one of these is not like the others right yeah (laughs) for something more than just their actual gender in that I'm all for sure for representation I'm all for diversity D, I'm all for inclusion. Like, I think there's a perfectly solid argument for Gerwig, and one could argue that she deserves it more than Todd Phillips, and and I might even be in that camp. But that being said, like, there's also years where it's like, we don't need to necessarily force one in there when this is literally meant to just honor the top five. Like, it's not like we're talking about who was good this year right it's not like we're saying like if you're not one of these top fives you were a terrible movie like that's the hard that's part. not what this is this is saying these are literally in our view or in the view of the voters the eight thousand. these are the numbers. top five like right. that doesn't mean there's nothing wrong with being six right or seven or sure. eight sure history doesn't remember you but at the same time like there's plenty of movies out there that didn't get the love from the academy right that actors Got tons of jobs because of those roles. Sure. The movie creators made tons of money. Right. Because of those movies. Like, look, I would love for Avengers Endgame to have gotten better represented here and gotten more nominations. But how many careers did this franchise launch? How many billions of dollars did it make the people involved? Like, I don't, I'm not that worried. Like, it got its recognition in... The amount in the box office, how people wrote about it, things like Black Panther getting nominated last year. Like Mm -hmm. they've made their inroads. And, you know, while it would have loved to see the final payoff movie that I feel like was great on so many levels that your traditional superhero movie is not. Right. Like I'm I'm okay with it not being nominated for Best Picture. I don't have a whole lot of qualms with anything that was nominated this year. But you can, I mean, and you can admit this too, like, it's actually exactly what you just said. I'm just going to repeat what you just said, is that, you know, the Oscars aren't the be-all, end-all of what is good or what is bad, but it is about exposure, right? And as you said, Avengers Endgame doesn't need exposure. Yeah. It's got enough of it. And hell, maybe Lupita doesn't need exposure as an individual, but I think more on a conceptual level, it's just that women people of color, 
in general are what needs more exposure. And it's kind of a chicken before the egg scenario because there is a, a you know, the reason for the longest time that there wasn't a lot of females directors nominated is because there wasn't a lot of female directors. You know, there wasn't a lot of females in certain um, areas of this industry, right? And now that there are more, there are getting to be more nominations, which means more females will see that, uh, more people of color will see that, and and thus the cycle will continue. You know, the numbers will continue to get pumped up, hopefully. Um, and so, like, that's... That's what I'm looking for. That's why last year was so great. Last year had so much, not only in uh, sociopolitical diversity, you know, race, gender, uh, uh, all those types of things, but also in genre diversity, you know, so. But I think also, you know, there's there's things that need to be, and again, maybe it's a chicken before the egg, I don't know, kind of situation, but there are some examples of like, why has Meryl Streep had so many nominations? Right. Part of that's because we've talked about this before. Like when we do our hindsight awards, there's some years where like the, yeah, there was the, like jack squat the Acad- for good roles for women. The in Academy movies. is broken, like fundamentally, despite the fact that they have added hundreds of new younger members, inexplicably they're still making the same you know, mistakes kind of, although Meryl did not get nominated for supporting actress. But I, but I would argue for a long, for the longest time, like people like Meryl Streep were the only ones getting these great, like, right. Kind of Academy esque roles. Right. And cause we go back, like we look back 20 years and we look at the, the options for like a best supporting actress or a best, uh, actress. Right. And like, sometimes it's hard to get to like, anything outside of the five that were nominated because there's just not a lot of great there roles. There some bad ones. There's some bad ones. I think last year and last year we did five, 10 and, and 20. And I think when right. we were looking at the 20, we were just like, Ugh, like it's hard to say like anything outside of these because there just wasn't a ton of roles. And so I think that thankfully seems to be changing where like we talk about actress or supporting actress and we're like this this person got snubbed or that. It's good that we're talking about people getting snubbed. Yeah. Because that means there's better roles and there's better performances happening right. than maybe there were before. Before, like, it was like, well, we're struggling to pull in five. Like, how are- many years in the past would we say, like, there wasn't even a female director sure. to nominate? Yeah. Like, to me, like, yes, I would have loved to see Diversity and Greta get the nomination, but I think... It's progress in general to just be able to say, like, there's a handful of female directors that could have gotten nominated oh, this year. But like, progress never moves fast enough. No, it never, it never moves fast enough for people. And and usually I would say the masses or or maybe not the masses, but like the people involved in the communities are ahead of like the actual like institutions that moderate those oh, like in many in many areas because that's what that's what brings about the change is people right. getting upset people wanting to be a part people getting active people getting involved right that's what it goes like people not being okay that there's not a lot of female directors and so studios go out of their way to find yeah. the next Greta Gerwig and things like that like, minority directors look at Marvel what Marvel's doing people like, see the success of a Wonder Woman and right. say like we can make female centric superhero it's become its own PR we we talk about this all the time and this will be the last thing that we talk about before we uh 
who before we get to talk about 1917. But it's its own version of PR now. You know, you and I talked a couple of times about how the the, the modern audience is infinitely more educated than they ever, ever were before about the inner workings of filmmaking, about the studio system, about how, um, case in point, Scott Derrickson just a couple of days ago was, um, they mutually agreed to part ways with him as the director of Doctor Strange 2, right? In 1985, nobody cares. In 1995, nobody cares. I would argue probably even in 2005. In 2005, like, oh, they're in some trades, because you still had variety and stuff like that. Sure. Announcing those things, but the regular Joe Schmo sitting at home, we never cared. We, we never learned about it. And now we as an audience, film Twitter, film fans in general, heck, even the public movie going, you know, the movie going public at large, we have access to so much more information and studios can use that as PR. The directors, the people behind the scenes who are working on this movie are now as popular as the actors. The creators are as popular as the movie stars. Back in the day, it was come see the new Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. But now it's come see the new Taika movie, come see the new Greta movie. And that's really cool. And that hasn't um, not been the case. People have been wanting to go see Spielberg and Scorsese. And even before that, it was come see the John Ford movie and the uh, all, that kind of stuff. But... It's the, just interesting how studios can pay attention to but that. But that's why even a lot of times it's less and less popular now, but the advertisements were from the director who brought you this movie. Because if you would have said from whatever, I'm just going to throw out a random, from Todd Phillips. Okay. You know, from director Todd Phillips. Like, even today, like, people may know that, people may not. Right. But, like, more people probably have a chance at knowing that and knowing that off of the name. Like, there's more directors that you could say from this director mm -hmm. and people be like, oh, I'm excited to see that because I love that director. Right. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago, it would be, like, from the it'd, director who brought you Titanic in, or whatever it be. And it'd only be in be. the trailer. Exactly. It wouldn't even be in the trades. It would only be in the trailer. It'd be from the director of Con Air. Yes. Okay, I liked Con Air. I might like this. Exactly. But anyway, it's going to be a really interesting four or five weeks, I think it is. You got your uh, your picks already? You already you already got your picks Honestly, locked in? Uh, there are a couple. I would lock in. Uh, what's what's your number one lock right now? If, number uh, one lock. If we, were, if we were giving betting advice on the Oscars. Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt's your number one lock. Number Interesting. one lock. I think all of the acting categories are um, really close to locks. Interesting. Um, I really do. Uh, picture, I have, picture, director, they're up for grabs in my opinion. Um, but yeah, like it would, like Joaquin. Sure, I've, lock, I've, lock I've got a, I've got a better lock for you. Lock in Joaquin, lock in Renee. I got a better lock for you. Okay, Toy Story Four, best animated. Okay, I'm fascinated by this because Toy Story Four, David, not coming out. It's not the strongest of. I don't know how to say this because I love Toy Story Four. Sure, it's very strong. Oh, no, I got you. Right? But it's Toy but, Story Four. But what's what's gonna take it for? animated feature i i could 100 percent see missing link come in i could see i lost my body come in i'm just saying when it comes to animated feature you're getting more likely it's a it's a more of a likelihood that the big studio movie 
might get bumped for the little indie animated film. We've seen it before. It's happened. So I'm I'm not as big. No, on- actually, no. I'll change my biggest lock. Although I still think Toy okay. Story Four is a lock. Parasite for international. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a guarantee. That is. If a- if if there was one, if you had to bet your house on something, I would bet it on Parasite, Parasite for international. International. That's a pretty good bet. We'll we'll obviously be talking more about the. The Oscars, in just the, like last year with Roma and International. That's true. Lock it in. Like it's if, so if, strong. If an international movie also gets a Best Picture nod, you can pretty much assume it's happened. I think there was on Twitter today. I think it's happened six times or seven times, and the and it only didn't happen once. Yeah. So, so which is crazy to think about. Yeah. Um, we will be talking more about the Oscars. We will be doing our hindsight awards, looking back at the films of 1999. That was the year of American Beauty. That was the year of The Matrix, Fight Club, a lot of really interesting movies. And I'm really excited to wipe the slate of some of the movies that were nominated that year because there are just some movies in there that, while they are good movies, nobody's talking about them anymore. And that's what the Hindsight Awards are out. We'll have our Oscar predictions as we get closer, as the Guild the Awards get handed out. But, David, we got to talk about 1917. But before we do that... We're going to take a quick little break. What's up, good movie buddies? Before we continue, I want to remind everybody that you can get regular episodes of the podcast delivered to you for free just by hitting the subscribe button or following wherever you're listening from. So we, I mean, from the bottom of my heart, we appreciate you listening. Thank you so much. We would love if you took just a second, write a review. Give us a rating. Share the popcorn diet with any of your own good movie buddies. We also want to remind you that you can check us out on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash the popcorn diet and consider giving a couple dollars to the podcast. Support the creators of the content that you love. Not only is it going to help us improve the podcast, but it also gives you access to patron-only exclusives like early episodes, franchise refills, and more. Of course, we don't want you to forget that you can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, at The Popcorn Diet. And last but certainly not least, you can find all of our latest regular episodes, articles, and more on our website, popcorndietpodcast.com. But David, we're going to shift a little bit. We're going to do a little bit different um, this year. Actually, you know what? I didn't ask you this right now. Should uh, Should we just do full spoilers for 1917? Should we or should we give the audience... A little bit of a reprieve, do some non-spoilers. Let's let's talk a little bit of non-spoilers. We'll keep it really brief, talking like 10, 15 minutes. Okay. Just to get people amped we'll up for we'll it. Try. Because I feel like most of the people listening probably have not seen it yet. Um, and I think you and I both would heavily, heavily, as people will learn if you listen to the rest of this podcast, yes. that we are huge fans of Spoiler 1917. Spoiler alert, perfect popcorn. Double perfect popcorns right here, man. 1917. This was a movie I was so excited to see when the first trailer came out. And then when I heard, because I believe that uh, the trailer came out, and it was after that that I had heard that director Sam Mendes intended for this entire film to look as if it was done in one single shot. Now, logistically speaking, you know that that's not physically possible. Like, there's just no conceivable way that this size of movie and this type of movie could have been done in one actual shot. But still, I was ready to, I'm, I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. Sign me up. So I was super hyped for this movie. I was also really upset that I had to wait 
till <laughs> January, what, 10th or whenever, however long I had to wait for to see this movie. I think you were even more so upset that you had to sit through the Golden Globes not having seen the movie. Seriously, like I have to sit through these awards and I can't see this movie and everybody's bitching about Netflix and, oh, their release you know, strategy sucks for Irishmen. I can only see it in the movie theaters and then it's on Netflix. Well, the same thing happened here. Like I was pissed off that only New York and L.A. got to see this movie and I had to wait. I, I don't think the hype could have gotten any higher for me when it won the Golden Globe for Picture and Director, when they did screenings and everybody who went and saw it on film Twitter was like, this is the front runner. This is an incredible cinematic experience. I got so excited, David, that when I was in the theater waiting for it to start, I was genuinely worried. I was like... Am I too hype for this? Is it? Are my expectations too high? So I'm happy to report that they were not. So here's my question. Do you think it was quietly genius the way that they went about it? As painful as it was for you, I don't, know, I don't know that a movie like 1917 I just, with, I just... with no actors really of substance in lead roles, right. not... not in the movie, but right. although they not, did a good job of using the ones that showed up, sure. But at the same time, like I don't think anybody felt like, oh, this is a movie about Mark Strong or right. you know, like Benedict things like Cumberbatch, that. sure. Um, and so I think I don't know that this movie opens up to thirty six million, which I think is what it opened up yep. this weekend. If without that, hype. without the Golden Globes happening and it winning, and obviously you can't predict. Sure. That it was going to win best director and and best drama, best drama, yeah, at the Golden Globes. Like that was like perfect storm of things happening. But at the same time, like it kind of turned out working like genius for incredibly. Them. Yeah, you're right. I didn't realize as I was saying everything that I was saying that I was basically like just giving kudos to the marketing <laughs> department. As angry as I was about the rollout, clearly it works. Because it made $36 million. But this is one of my... We, we already did our United States of Film episode. We already did our best of the decade, our best of 2019, David. This definitely makes my top 10 of, of 2019. 1917, I think I told you, I moved it into the number two spot. Where You obviously liked it as much as well. I what, where does it fit for you in the, in the year yeah. in review? I'm still doing some settling as far as like it's always hard because you always have recency bias to some point. Sure. I feel like I need to go and watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in 1917 again. Yeah. To compare them head to head. Sure. Because, I mean, it's been almost six months since I've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right. So. But that being said, I think 1917 might be my favorite movie of the year. It's incredible. It's amazing. It's incredible. It's, it's, I, and, and I tweeted this out. It's a, it's a magic trick of a movie. You know, it's, it's a magic trick of a movie where you know what you're seeing isn't possible, right? But yet the technical mastery behind it makes it seem possible. Um, and the whole one take thing is absolutely incredible. And it's, it's so visceral, it's thrilling, it's terrifying. It's exhausting. It's beautiful. It's it's incredible. It has maybe my favorite scene 
or sequence of the year, maybe ever. I'm not sure. Again, maybe it's recency bias. Um, but it's absolutely incredible. Now, there have been some people who said that the one shot was a distraction or, or that it maybe took away from it. How, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about what Mendez tried to do here? Because Mendez set out very specifically to tell this story about the camera with the camera never leaving our two leads. Yep. It never once leaves them. It is always following them. In some way, shape, or form. Yeah, sometimes there's a couple moments where you get what feels like their perspective. Sure. A little bit, like an over-the-shoulder. Yeah. We're looking at what they're looking at. Um, there's a lot where we're looking directly at them. But it, sure. it shifts around. So, like, I think a lot of people, f when I first heard one shot and we're going to follow the two leads the whole time, I felt like, is this going to be... this? This better not be like a first person type of right. Movie. Are we just going to be over their shoulder the entire time? Yeah, and so that's where I felt like we, while we do spend a lot of time in certain positions, I think there's enough variation that you don't feel like you're watching a first person shooter from right. that standpoint. Right. It's uh, incredible. And from to to answer your question, is it a distraction for me? Not at all. No. I think. It is so much more engaging to me because I felt like because we follow a certain point of view for the most part and two characters the entire time, mm -hmm. I felt like you didn't want to miss things. So you kind of were more on the edge of your seat because you knew, okay, if I'm following someone's perspective, like they're walking by something like that may be the last time that we see it because right. they're walking by something. Right. And so I was... I felt like I was trying so much harder to like observe what was going on because you don't have those pull away shots where you see the entire place sure. and you can see what's going on. Like you needed to kind of focus. I also felt like it engrossed me, especially when we're talking about something like war, where it's like there's a lot going on, obviously, right? Oh, yeah. You know, there's, you know, people shooting at you. You're, you know, there's all the intensity and, and tension of being on the front lines, mm -hmm. which is where they're at. To go through that and feel like you're in the middle of this, like mm -hmm. to me, like the gold standard going into this movie, and I'm not, I'm not saying that this is better than this movie, but the gold standard for war movies, in my opinion, is Saving Private Ryan. Sure, I don't think you're the only person who has. That I, I don't think that's going out on too big of a ledge. No. Not that there aren't other fantastic war movies, not but exactly like a hot take. When I think of like what the gold standard is in that, and I remember that movie being so intense, yeah. but it was for different reasons. It was for when they stormed the beach of Normandy, like right. the amount of like people dying, explosions, just chaos of it mm -hmm. was just intense. It was, like, it, it was, was tough. almost like, unbearable. Yeah. It was something I would definitely not let my child watch for a right. long time. Right. Not because there's a bunch of F words and things like that. Like not because of, unsuitable content just because like it is intense like right. to go through that is intense and i felt similarly similarly exhausted from this film yes at the end yes and there was none of that like not that there weren't explosions and there wasn't f battles and that but there was nothing to the degree of what we're talking about until maybe the end and even that i would call that a whole lot more calm than like Normandy. Yeah, I wouldn't Private call it calm, Ryan but it's it's not Normandy. 
Yeah, like, and it, it's not is, even it's not even some of the other movies that we've seen. Like it's not even Pearl Harbor. Like think about Pearl Harbor when sure. the Japanese are bombing the battleships and that. Like you're used to all these fast cuts mm-hmm. of war movies, like mm-hmm. going to all these different perspectives and a bomb coming in and an explosion happening. Like you're used to just the chaos of war, which is I'm sure an accurate, I've never been in war, but I'm sure it's an accurate depiction. Sure. And I think so many people came in expecting that if this is a World War, it's one or two? One. one. If it's a World War One movie, like we should see like that, what we're used to in war movies. Right. But that's not what this was trying to tell. No, it was not telling at all. the journey of two soldiers that were given an almost impossible task to go across the front lines. To deliver a message into enemy territory, into enemy territory to deliver a message to hopefully prevent a massacre. Yeah, and like that's not a story of like big explosions and right. and, and and I don't know the true story, so I don't know how to the source material that this kept. But right. to me, if you described it like this is the only way it could have happened, like they couldn't have like gone Wonder Woman and run through like right. A giant active shooting front line, and this like, was and this was a ad- it wasn't even adapted, although it was kind of adapted, but it was adapted from Mendez's great grandfather who served in World War One and was a messenger and told these stories of yeah. how they had to communicate without phone lines and without technology and things yeah. like that. And I think to your point about the intensity, that's what a one take is designed to do. Depending on the obviously the type of movie, the type of content in the take itself, a lot of times one takes are especially nowadays, they are being utilized to not only give you a lay of the land in, in a realistic way. You go back to like Scorsese's one take in uh, in Goodfellas, or even the, he has a pretty genius one take in The Irishman, completely different type setup. Because those movies are designed, or those one takes are designed to pull us into the world deeper and give us an idea of what, where we are, what we are doing. And while this movie has a lot of that, it also employs my other favorite feeling with one takes, which is cuts in movies, they give you an opportunity to breathe, if even just for a second, you know? Whether it be I'm going from a wide master shot to a, a, a close-up to a different angle to a different angle to a different angle, they're all designed to do the same thing, inform us, but they offer these little reprieves. And my favorite thing about what 1917 does as well as some of the action movies that have uh, singular takes in them is that it's it's like – Watching somebody running along a balance beam, except the balance beam is just, it's longer. It gets longer. It gets longer. And it's just like, oh, my God, they're still going. Oh, they're still going. And the way that it transitions from, you know, trenches to battle to this to that and all that kind of stuff, it just ratchets it up even more like they're still going. They're still going. They're still going. And it makes it all the more tense. It makes it all the more. Imagine if you just saw somebody running around uh, on a, a, a mile long balance beam that kept getting smaller. That's what a one take is like, you know. Yeah. Um, and I loved it. And well, I, I th- love that he made that technological decision. And I think that's one of the things that unfortunately goes hand in hand with advancing 
kind of pushing the envelope from a technology standpoint. From a technological and, filmmaking standpoint. And and we see the examples of this, and this year has been a fantastic example of this. You get something like The Irishman. Yeah. A lot of people were like, oh, the CGI, you know. Right. It's weird or it's distracting. Right. From the story. And it's like, okay, like this is amazing technology that we're displaying right here. Right. And... I would argue that you could go back and watch some older movies and the technology's much more distracting. Very much. Go back than, and watch Tron Legacy. Exactly. Jeff and Bridges looks weird. Exactly. So, Or you get The Lion King where it's like the complaint people made is the animals look too realistic. It's too realistic. It's too realistic. Like, Mission, I can't see enough of the expressions of these animals like I did in the animated You accomplished the technological goal, but you failed maybe on a storytelling goal, even though I don't agree with that. Sure. Um, even Avatar, like you yeah. want to go back to something like Avatar or even Titanic. Yeah. You know, these movies that tried to push forward technology in a way that the Academy recognized in nominations and whatnot, but the society at large or whatever you want to call it, the audience. Um, I mean, for Avatar, it made $2 billion, but in yeah. hindsight, you know, people discard the technological advancements that it gave us just because like, ah, eh, it's Pocahontas. Or it's Fern Gully, yeah, or whatever. I mean, to me, it's to me when I think of this movie, it's going to be super memorable because people, a lot of people have even said like, no one's going to remember this movie down the line. I think that's the complete opposite, and I also think it's going to be something that you can trace back. Think about the types of movies that we could have that would be so interesting shot in the same way. Like, right. you think about something that's like. Like I talked to you immediately after I saw this movie, like an Indiana Jones move type right. movie where I think you you broke down. Like, think about that first scene right. from uh, Raiders. Raiders. Like if you do just a two hour or a 90 minute Indiana Jones movie, but it's in real time and it's just him trying to escape one temple. Exactly. I'm in. Think how like sweaty you would be by the end of that movie. Right. And it's just and- to see if you can do it. Yeah, you know, it's just like anything else. Can we do this? Can we pull this off? And this, and what's the first thing that you said after you saw the movie? I said I, <laughs> I because I'm trying to keep my language uh, on the on the con- under control here. I basically was like, I freaking love movies. I just love what they can do and how they can be told. I just freaking love And how movies. they can be different. And, and how so, they can be different. And that's what I think is the thing that I love about this movie is I have seen probably hundreds of war movies at mm-hmm. this point. At least a hundred. Yeah. And there is nothing like this. And it's not a unique it's not all that unique of a story. Yes, right. it's a story I haven't heard told before. Right. But at the same time, like the idea of like small numbers having to <laughs> overcome an instrument, you know, Absolutely. a somewhat, you know, a man on a mission movie. We've seen it before. Yeah, you know. and you know, lack of numbers, you, you uh, know, insurmountable odds, it's like, an like all those. Types it goes of back to the Odyssey. It goes back to old Greek mythology of seeing. You know, one or two people who are on this, like you said, a borderline impossible journey, you know, and seeing how where they started and where they end up and how they get there. It's incredible to see it all in one shot. It's incredible. But to but to do that. So to tell 
to use some normal tropes that we've seen from plenty of movies before. But for me to feel like this movie was absolutely unique and different right. and a new experience. Right. And for me to be able to sit through a war movie right. that doesn't have a whole lot of war in it from a standpoint of like the, guns going off, right. bombs exploding, quick, all that kind of stuff. It's bursts of violence rather than gigantic like, battles. For me to literally be on the edge of my seat the entire movie right. for... And and to credit it, a restrained movie from the standpoint of it's only an hour and forty eight minutes. Sure. Like, when's the last time we got <laughs> a movie getting this much of claim that wasn't over two hours? Right. Like how many best picture movies this are really not only two an hours? Hour forty eight minutes. I'm pretty sure it's an hour and forty eight minutes. It's just under two hours. Hour fifty nine. Hour fifty nine. But again, how many best picture nominees in <laughs> have we gotten that are under two hours? From that standpoint, not a, be, not a whole lot. No. Um, yeah, man, it, it's it's just it's incredible. It's uh, and it's not I mean, at the we can talk more about this in spoilers, but it's um, the goal of the movie is not war. It is to deliver a message. It's to stay alive, to get this message. So oftentimes war is actively avoided. Um, it's so unique and it's so fun. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit of spoilers, but before we do, we got to do the popcorn rating. What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn? Uh-huh. I only eat popcorn at the movies. Now, if you've never listened to this podcast before, and we we haven't done an actual popcorn rating in a couple of episodes, but we rate our films a little bit differently. We rate them based on our popcorn meter. We have five levels of popcorn. Uh, starting with burnt popcorn, which means a movie is garbage. Don't waste your time with it at all. We have stale popcorn, which is like if, yeah, absolutely have to in a pinch. I guess you can watch it, but don't spend any money on it. We have microwave popcorn, which is it's in the middle. It's fine. You know, microwave popcorn could be really good for some people and not quite as good for others. We have movie theater popcorn, which means you should see this in a movie theater as soon as possible. Uh, and Well, a movie theater in general. And then we have perfect popcorn, which means you should see this on the biggest screen as soon as you can. And if we're ever in the middle, we throw a soda in there as well. We do microwave popcorn and a soda. But, David, I feel very confidently that there is no soda needed here. This is a, one of our more emphatic perfect popcorns. It's certainly a perfect popcorn for me. It's a movie that I think everyone should experience. And, hell, if, you're, if you know me and you're listening to this, tell me you want to see it and I will take you to go see it. It's incredible. It's one of the... M- one of the best cinematic experiences I've had all year, and that includes 2019. David, am I correct in that it perfect is perfect popcorn. popcorn for you? All right. Perfect popcorn for both of us. Now, we want to talk a little bit spoilers. Um, I didn't have a ton here, um, but I did want to, at the very least, talk about some of our favorite parts. Um, yeah. I don't know if you had more necessarily to contribute I think first and foremost, one thing I wanted to get away before we go into favorite parts is a lot of people have talked about how in this movie, basically, it's all about Sam Mendes from the standpoint of it's all about the way he shot the movie, the way he put it together, just the experience that you get from this movie. And I would absolutely agree. Like 
if we were talking about who's the lead actor in this, it's almost Sam Mendes it's in the way that it was incredible directorial achievement. That being said, I thought the performances in this movie were fantastic. Yeah. Like, I loved all the supporting uh, from, like, the lieutenants and colonels. Sure, and that. that's where they pocketed it with Andrew Scott and Colin Firth and Mark Strong, Benedict Cumberbatch. I thought all of those performances were fantastic. We even got Richard Madden Richard in there. Richard Madden. Um, but I also thought our two leads were also fantastic. Phenomenal. Especially... Uh, oh. McKay? George McKay? Schofield? Or Blake? Schofield. Schofield is George McKay. A yes. lot of people thought he could have snuck in for a best actor nomination that's that's kind of what my thoughts were is you know i'm not upset i think there's way more showy performances out there but like to just discard this movie as all about the way it was directed and the way it was shot and not recognize how great of performances are in there right um to me would be short-sighted and and missing i mean you see it in in a number of moments with him, whether it be, you know, when Blake is dying in his arms and he's oh, talking to him, whether it be when he's delivering that message to Richard Madden about yes. his brother that when passed he's away. yelling at Benedict Cumberbatch, like I ha- when he's oh, when he's pushing through the crowd at the end, yeah. he's just like, I need to go, I need to look. Where is this person? Yeah, I mean, to me. He's super memorable to yeah. me of this movie. Like definitely the way it's shot, but I'll remember right. a lot of those scenes with him yeah. and his performance in them. He's really good and and he is a really good yin and a yang with Blake. Blake is played by Dean Charles Chapman who played Tommen in Game of Thrones yep. and he's great too and they're so u- unique of characters in that Blake is the more emotional one. Blake is the more this is our duty and he's kind of a little bit of gung- he's a little gung-ho about it and Schofield is not and the biggest reason is because Blake's brother is in the company that is going to get ambushed and I actually really like it although they didn't really lean into it with the uh, with the advertising here but I found it really interesting that the person who is more emotionally invested in the journey dies halfway through yeah it's tragic it's sad um, but it's also like what the hell is going to happen now. Like what's, what are we going to do? And it's impacted all the more powerful when you see at the very end that Schofield's he's got this metal case with him and he peeks in it a couple times. And then at the end, he finally gets to sit down and pulls it out and it's pictures of his wife and his daughters, which recontextualizes everything. Everything. Absolutely. He could have bailed at any moment. He could have bitched out. He could have, no, I'm trying to get to my family. I'm trying to stay alive for my family. But he stayed the course to the very end, running through those explosions. And that's just incredible. That's incredible filmmaking. I think anybody who discounts Sam Mendes here, I would be, this is a weird turn. I would be very interested in to see what, into seeing what they thought about Boyhood. Because sure. I did not like Boyhood. But I can appreciate the technical skill that went involved into crafting that movie and filming one every year for 12 years or whatever it was. That's an incredible achievement. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact that I didn't like the movie, I can recognize that achievement. I'd be interested to see what the people who think that it's a negative think about Boyhood as yeah. well. Um, it's incredible. So, and the other thing is, you talked about it being a, like a, um, uh, you were worried it was going to be like a video game, but because it's a 
it's it's a cinematic journey that is constantly moving forward. It almost does feel like a video game sure. in in ways where it's like, okay, we're at a new level. Well, and I, I think to me, my concern was not as much that the story and that it would follow a video game because I talked to you about this we when talked about we it. first got out of it was there's nothing maybe back in the day there would have been issues with something being compared to a video game but right. there are deep rich like really great stories right. in some video we talked games about this that's in the Rise how of Skywalker that's how episode. some of these video games become so popular is because their stories right. are so fantastic right and so to me it was more like I didn't want it to feel like <laughs> a third person shooter. we we were okay with upgrade but what was the, there was that uh it had alliteration in it hardcore like, henry hardcore henry yeah. yes that was a first person um, that shooter. was a first person shooter like i didn't want that and obviously i knew that wasn't what we were gonna get but right. like i didn't want it to be just one perspective the whole movie no from and that. and that's another genius thing that i stayed up so late after i watched this movie because i wanted to watch all the documentaries on like how they made it yeah like the camera rigs that they created for this movie so that they can go 360 degrees around the actors and um for the most part there's no lighting it's all natural lighting yeah which is incredible roger deakins is a god He's um, amazing uh there's no there's very little like on set um behind the scenes like tents and and things like that like and they CGI'd out some of it yeah. but that's the a brilliant way they use CGI but what were your f- what would you say is some of your favorite parts of the movie i kind of there's sections right just like levels where they're in no man's land and they got to go through that they start in the in the friendly trenches which is kind of a nice setup get to know these characters then they go through no man's land which is like this quiet horror then they go through the enemy barracks, which is, again, like, we don't know what to expect. Then they go to, uh, uh, to the, oh, the, fucking, the farmhouse what? with the biplanes, crossing the bridge and getting the action. The whole night flare sequence. Yeah. The river, the forest, the final run. Like, it's an incredibly simple movie to break down, but... Well, uh, I think first and foremost, if we just kind of take it from the start to the end, I loved... What I think my favorite supporting role, I guess you could call it, or cameo, however you want to call it, would be that first lieutenant Andrew that's, Scott. that's drinking while yeah. he's talking to them. and Just basically, completely disheveled. But it sets the table so well for what they're going into. Right. And I'm sure what people's mindset was in this war, like, this seems like just a battle it's like a last man standing. And that's said in the movie at one point. Yeah. That this isn't who's better than who it's who's the last man standing right and you see that throughout the film and that was the cool thing about this film in general is there's so many things that tie into the over that we hear from a bit character or from the main characters that ties into the overall theme like when mark strong tells him that like i'm sure i don't have to tell you this but it's best to like move on from your friends basically saying it's best to move on from your friend's tragic death in your arms right. as quickly as possible. Yeah. Like it's crazy. to get through this, it's best to move on quickly. Yeah. It's best to cut yourself off emotionally from this. And it, and it's, there's things like that throughout it, but I loved kind of that setting the table because that makes no man's land and what they're about to go into that much more dramatic. But I think one of the other things that I really love as I, we're kind of picking out scenes is when then the German trenches, 
I don't know if you felt this way, but when we were inside of those and it was dark and that, mm-hmm. it kind of felt like we shifted into a horror movie. A little. Like whether it be the rat coming out of nowhere, uh-huh. the lighting of like just a flashlight and like a quick turn to like what's going to be around the corner where the rat go there and yeah. then the trip wire. And then all of a sudden, like there was a, a lot of feelings of almost like a horror esque movie, like what's going to pop out of this tunnel because, because of the view that we have mm-hmm. and because we don't have any pullout view or anything like that, you kind of felt like a lot of horror movies were like fear of the unknown. Yeah. Like I can't see what's down that tunnel. Right. Maybe someone's going to jump out. We know that the Germans, we established that. And there's so many establishing things that he does when we get into these different levels, Mm -hmm. like them pretty early on kicking over the thing of ashes, basically saying like they They were were basically just just here. here. Yeah. So like, is it out of the realm of possibility that there's a straggler German that was like too sick or too hurt to leave that is just chilling in there with a gun and. They said, here's a gun, like kill any, <laughs> yeah. kill any uh, English, English that come yeah. by. Like, so like all of that, that he sets up. And then like when they get to the farmhouse and you see that milk was recently, that there's milk in that bucket yeah. and it's still, it's not bad. It's, it's, it's still, still warm. Good. So they're just behind whatever's happening. So like, is it out of the realm of possibility that there's someone here right? <laughs> and it's like, you're on constantly on edge because you don't have all that information because they're not giving you the context of everything around. Right. It. It's phenomenal, man. Um, I uh, Deacons wins this Oscar with the Night Flares sequence. Oh, yeah. It's almost otherworldly. Like you want to talk about a horror movie. Do you pretty much lock that that will be the That's shot that they show uh, when they do the Oscars? Yeah, I'd be shocked. When they show the clip from 1917 for best cinematography, are they going to show... The running with the flares. Yeah. Like, how could they not? Or they might show him walking up to the f- burning church. Okay. Yeah. Because yep. that was another, that was a huge lighting. I could rig. see that be the ending shot. Right. Like, they could show clips of him running. Right. But then end with the 1917 on the screen with the church with in the background standing and standing. And again, it's just, again, a technical marvel that that's just a gigantic orange lighting rig designed to ref, uh, to simulate fire. And they CGI'd it all with an actual building there and actual flames but, there. It's but, amazing. But think about even in that scene, like coming back to the things that the one shot gives you that you don't get in a normal movie. Uh-huh. You were sitting there when he was standing there uh-huh. thinking like you saw that soldier approaching. Right. It's like, oh, this is amazing. It's like, oh, there's a guy over there. But you because you only have this perspective, like you can't tell whether he's German or English. Nope. Until we start. And to then run again. And it's and you also get the sense that neither of them know yeah. whether he's English or German. And then as they get closer and closer, finally he realizes like that's a English. Yeah. And he starts chasing. And all of a sudden uh Schofield realizes that's not an English. I better I get running. I gotta run. Cause it's cause we knew we were close to where the English were, and we didn't yeah. know where the Germans had pulled out. Obviously, we had had the sniper scene in that that established that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still Germans in this area. Yeah. But you didn't know when you saw that, is this good or bad? You didn't know when you were with uh, the girl in that room with her baby. Oh, what's going to happen? What might happen? Right. You know, all that kind of stuff. Even though it was a little bit of reprieve, it was still very, very intense. But it, it just added more 
stakes to it, though, in my yeah. opinion, because you were like, I really hope a German doesn't walk in. It's the fear of the unknown, you know? It's it's rather than making a movie where it cuts to the German searching doors outside or it shows a cut of the woman and, oh, she's got a gun behind her back. It's the fear of the unknown. Yeah. It's a complete different level of tension where something could happen at any moment and I am unprepared for it. Yeah. It's this coiled feeling. And then, if, I mean, my, like I said, my favorite part of the movie and I think... Maybe my favorite scene of the year, maybe my, I don't know, it's incredible, is that final push when he realizes, when he crawls through the river, he hears the singing, a beautiful moment where they're all sitting in the forest and there's one person singing and he says, I'm looking for this company and they're like, we're it. And he's like, and and he's, he needs to stop this advance as it begins. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh God, it's happening. Oh no. And he forces his way into the trenches and it follows him all the way through these trenches looking for the commanding officer to the point of where you get the shot in the trailers, the shot that you've seen on Twitter where he crawls out of the bunker and just does a sprint yeah. through through the explosions, through the, uh, the English forces as they go over the bunker the and wave, start yeah. charging. And the music swells. It's a track. It's called 1600 Men by Thomas Newman. I cried. Like, I was like, this is phenomenal filmmaking. Like, there's, I was like, the last, like, 20 minutes of that movie, I was, I was, I was teary-eyed the entire time because of how amazing it was made, how beautiful it was made, like, how relieving it was when he actually got him to stand down. And then, even then, you realize, like, oh, God, he's got to find Blake's brother. And yeah. that whole exchange. Well, was... and because, well, and and backtracking a little bit to when he finds them singing. Yeah. Like he's fought so hard to get here, and right. you realize, like, okay, there's troops here, so they obviously haven't. You're thinking in your mind, okay, maybe they haven't attacked like, oh, yet. I can relax, and he thinks. But so. he's like absolutely exhausted against right. the tree, and you're like, get up, but like we're not there yet. We're you're not, not quite there. We haven't talked to him, and yeah. then you had that. Again, he does so good. He does such a good job at foreshadowing and casting that doubt because you had that conversation with Mark Strong where it's like, when you get to this general, make sure you have witnesses right. because some people, some people just, just want. want the fight. Yeah. And so I, like in the back of your head the whole time, you're like, is he going to make it all the way there? Right. And then just get shut down. Right. And they're going to just and go off to a massacre. that's going to happen because the two guys keep him out of the HQ. Exactly. And it's just like, oh, my God. And it's so stressful. It's so stressful. And then you get in there and he ends up listening and you feel like almost like you accomplished it with this yes. character. Yes. And you're like, yes. And even, even when he has to go and find him, then they cast the doubt of he asks, where is, where is Blake? I think. Right. And they say, oh, he was in the first wave. Where would he be? Out with his men, most likely. And so you just saw all these people run into an impossible and basically trap. Yeah. And God, you, is he dead? it's not, it's he... not, oh, he's in the third wave that hasn't even gone. It's, no. Of course he was in the first wave. Ugh. And now you have that doubt of, did he make it back? Did he not? And right. so you're going through all these wounded. And obviously then we find him. And you, I think... When he finds him, I think that's the very first chance you get to relax 
since they were given their orders. And all of the emotions come out. Which is the same for him. Yeah, because he's crying. They're like handing the, 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 the dog tags over and stuff like that. And then he goes to the tree at the end. And it's gorgeous. And I feel like it's so much more effective. Like, you know, you could say like, oh, it would have been better if like, they just started bawling or, or something like that. Right. And you had like that ugly cry for the Oscars, you know, <laughs> like something like that. But to me, like you're just exhausted at that point. Right. Like, I don't know that you would even have enough energy to cry. Right. Like you would well up, you would be sad, well, that kind gotta, of thing. You know, you got to maintain the, the British stiff upper lip. Sure. But, but in all of that, like, like Mark Strong said earlier in the mirror, like you've got to move on, like to survive in war, like you can't, linger on those things yeah like you don't have time for that yeah and so and and it's just incredible too like we established that he's hungry at the beginning of this movie oh yeah and yet when he's told to go get food he doesn't go to go get food no he just goes to freaking just sit down and relax absolutely it's incredible man i love how every every person he meets it's again it's almost like odysseus where he meets you know, the strung out general, the one who's, you know, been through it all. He meets the Mark Strong's character, who's the helpful general. Not They're not all generals, obviously, sure. they're corporals and captains and whatnot. You know, he meets the they meet the German pilot, you know, in the crash biplane that he meets the French woman, um, Cumberbatch. All, like, it's just an incredible. Uh, it, it, it does very much seem like a like a mythological type yeah. uh, journey. It's phenomenal. Yeah. I'm so happy I got to see it. I will. I would love to go see it again. All I got to do is find the time and, and I'll, and I'll it, be there. And if I could make one plea to close us here, go see it in the theaters. Like Mendez said it in his Golden Globes. Like, again, it's not that you won't appreciate this, watching this on your TV at home, but like, if there's a movie to go see in the theaters, it's like this movie, this movie needs to be seen. And like for you to truly appreciate everything that's great about this movie, uh-huh. go see it in the theaters. It is well worth it. It's incredible. It's even if you got to see it in the dollar theater. There's been a like, number of movies about guys. Wa- the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy was about guys walking to places. Yeah. And th- it's just absolutely incredible. I agree with you. Go see this in the theaters as soon as possible. Uh, That is going to do it for this episode. Before we wrap up, don't forget you can get regular episodes delivered to you for free by hitting that subscribe button or following us wherever you're listening from. Don't forget to check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash the popcorn diet. Consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Don't forget to follow us on social media at the popcorn diet. And last but certainly not least, you can find all of our latest regular episodes, articles, and more on our website, popcorndietpodcast.com but for the Canadian machine Mr. David Melhorn I am your very best good movie buddy Rick Williamson and we'll see you next time with another good movie on the popcorn diet adios